Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 as we look back at uh, this amazing section in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we have been working our way uh, methodically and carefully through this because it deals so centrally with the issue of the book of Romans itself, the, the, the veracity and the truthfulness of his message of salvation by faith alone. We've been looking at it so carefully because it has so, so much parallel, so much application to the same kind of issues that we face in our own day. Because in this particular section, Paul is dealing with unbelief. He's dealing with people who have been exposed to the Word of God, they've been exposed over and over again, and yet they have not believed it. Now, in this situation, this would have been cause for them to question the message because the people that Paul's talking about is Israel, and they were the ones who assumed that they were God's people. And since they assumed they were God's people, and since they had not accepted the word of the gospel, there was, at least on the part of some, the assumption that the gospel itself then must not be true, that the gospel itself must be the issue. That maybe what Paul's preaching is something different than the message of God, at least the message that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament. And so this sort of sets the backdrop for everything that Paul is saying. It is a question of whether or not what the gospel says is true. And Paul's answer to that is, you might say in in a very broad sense, twofold. In chapter 9, his answer was simply that no one can believe, no one can respond to the gospel unless God grants them the mercy to do so. In other words, he took us into the doctrine of election. And this is, this is he says, what explains why throughout the history of Israel there has always been so many unbelieving Jews because God simply didn't choose them. And it was for his own purposes and for his own glory that he did that. He took us all the way through the history of Israel, how even whenever you had twins born, when you had uh, people who were the two sons of Abraham, there was one of them believed and one of them didn't. One of them that were the children of God and one of them didn't. And throughout all of Israel's history, it was always like that. There was always an Israel within Israel, a true believing Israel. These were the ones that Paul says were elected by God. These are the ones that he chose, and that's why so many didn't believe. They didn't have that electing grace in their life. But don't hear all that stuff and imagine that Paul and his doctrine of election was just sort of taking some sort of fatalistic stance. You know, God decides it all. We all, you know, it's just not any part of our responsibility. It's not anything that we uh, necessarily need to worry about. We don't need to be so concerned then with whether or not we believe or we don't believe or whether or not we preach or we don't preach or whether or not any of that happens is because God is sovereign over it all. So we're just going to step back and we're just going to uh, just, just be fatalistic about all evangelism, all belief. That wasn't Paul's response at all. As a matter of fact, as we worked our way through the passage, we've already seen a couple of times that even with this very robust idea of God's sovereign election behind all belief and unbelief, 
we have heard some of the most heartfelt prayers from the apostles' lips of yearning, of begging, of pleading with God to save his fellow countrymen. And why would you pray that way? Unless you actually believe God had the power to do something about it. Evangelistic praying is predicated on the idea that you believe God is sovereign over, over salvation. And so what you see here is some of the most uh, uh, cohesive and, and deeply felt and impassioned theology worked out in the Apostle Paul so that he could on one hand affirm that God's grace in election was absolutely necessary for any Jew to believe. And at the same time he could plead and he could beg and he could pray so fervently for God to do something about his fellow unbelieving Jews. This is really setting the stage for the second part of Paul's answer, if you will, in chapter 10, which is really uh, dealing with the other side of the issue, we might say. Israel's belief, or should say Israel's unbelief, can partly be understood in just the the lack of God's electing mercy in their life. But at the same time, it needs to be understood in light of their rebellious hearts. Paul has made it abundantly clear in chapter 10 that their their unbelief is explained just as well by their own hardness, by their own resistance, by their own hatred of God and of His message. They heard the message over and over again. Faith was not far from them. Even in Moses' words, it was near. We might say it was right under their noses. Moses says it was in their mouth. It was in their hearts. And as we saw last week, the reason that it was so near, the reason that Paul emphasizes this is because the response that God demanded was so simple. What he asked of them was so basic. Just believe. Even with giving all the law of Moses, God was not demanding that Israel trust in some elaborate uh, scheme of their own efforts to establish their own righteousness. He wasn't wanting them to see how, how far they could go in pleasing Him so that they could make themselves somehow acceptable to Him. He wanted them to see how far they were. And how far they will always be from true righteousness. He wanted them to understand the law so that they could understand their need. So that they would cry out for His mercy and believe in it. And the message that came from even within the law itself was this. That in spite of all of your sin and in spite of all your wickedness, your lawlessness, your waywardness and your hard-heartedness. In spite of all that, if you believe, you will be saved. If you, as Paul says, believe in your heart, you're justified. And with your mouth, you confess and you're saved. That's how simple it is. That's how near it is. That's how basic it is. That's how inexcusable it is. If God would offer you eternal salvation... If God would offer you forgiveness of all your sins, if God would offer to you a a, a relationship of peace with Him and make it so simple, 
Why in the world would people not accept that? It seems inexplicable. If you confess, in this particular case, he's, sp- he's speaking in terms of, uh, of the arrival of Jesus Christ. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, if you're willing to believe those things, if those are the expressions of your heart, then Romans 10.13, Paul quoting from Isaiah here, says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Even those outside of Israel, even those born outside of the law, salvation is just as near to them because the requirement is just as simple. Believe those things and you'll be saved. Anyone could easily fulfill the requirement. The amazing thing is that Israel despite having all of this Scripture revealed to them, despite having all the prophets who brought all the message of God clearly clearly to Israel, despite having the whole law that made all of their need even more clear than anyone else in the world, despite having the temple service that made it a regular part of their culture and their life, despite having all of that, they still... Refused. Or as he says back in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, they didn't submit to God's obvious message. So in the remainder of chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, Paul, what he does then is he takes us into that conundrum even more. He takes us further into an examination of why this is the case. How could people who had so much exposure to the truth still be the very people who are most resistant or most missed the message of God. The only possible conclusion, someone might say, is, well, they didn't understand it. They didn't hear it. Somehow it wasn't made clear to them. And the message must have been hidden, or maybe they are unfairly being blamed for something that they never could hear or never could understand. And Paul's going to demonstrate to us that that's not the case at all. In fact, the real tragedy of Israel, the real tragedy of so many people, is that even when the message is made very plain to them, repeatedly presented to them, they still don't believe. He's going to demonstrate all this to us first by giving us an explanation of how faith comes about, and then secondly, an explanation of the provision that God made for just this kind of process. And then thirdly, the paradox within Israel's history of their rebellious hearts against the message. Before we get into all that, let me just read the, the text for you so that you can understand the, the, the argument in its whole. Paul says in verse 14, how, how then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. 
But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Paul is assembling here, I think, three explanations that tell the tragic tale of Israel's failure or refusal to listen to the preaching of the good news. And he begins by explaining very simply in verses 14 and 15 the process of preaching that leads to faith. Very clear, very simple, because the requirements are so simple. He had said in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So beginning in verse 14, he walks us through how a person would get there. And the point is very clear. The call to faith, the response of faith, necessarily implies the presence of messengers, right? The presence of preachers. Well, Paul reasons backward to that point. He does it with four consecutive questions. First of all, how can anyone call on those that they don't know? There might be religious people all over the world. There would be people who believe all kinds of things. They're religiously devoted. They're zealous. Whatever their uh, a system is, they're very active in it. But God is not saving them. Because God doesn't save people based on their sincerity. And God doesn't save people based on their devotion. And He doesn't save people based on their zeal. Paul had already said this back in the beginning of chapter 10. Israel was zealous, he says, for their religion. They were zealous, verse 2, and yet without knowledge. Because as Paul says, a clear understanding must be had before you're saved. A clear understanding, in this case of the Lordship of Christ, a clear understanding of His resurrection from the dead. People must be confronted with that truth. People must be presented with those realities. That must be what fills their mind. That must be what what is the focus of their attention, that must be what they respond to if they're going to believe. They have to respond to that knowledge. And so, if you don't know that, you can't believe. Which is the tragedy of so many places, even in so many churches, where the message, where the message is so unclear, so, we might say, re, uh, diluted or or. or some sort of uh, a repackaging of the world's message or the world's knowledge or the world's wisdom just repackaged with a Christian label on it. And people are presented with all kinds of ideas to respond to on a weekly basis, but they're never presented with the clear message of the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so if they're never presented with that message, they never have an opportunity to respond to that message and they can't be saved. You say, but they're zealous. They're there all the time. They're they're very active. They're moral people. It doesn't matter. The process is clear. How can people believe what they've never heard? 
And if belief is necessary for salvation, then what they must experience is they must experience the clear teaching of the truth. So where people don't know, it's not surprising if they're not calling on the Lord as they should. Secondly, how can they believe in Him whom they've never heard? Paul probably here having in mind the speaker. How can they believe someone they've never heard? How can they respond to a message that that they never get to hear? How can they respond to a preacher who never shows up? How can they accept a message from a speaker they've never met? And so third, how can they hear without someone preaching? If we grieve over people not properly responding to the gospel, not properly understanding the gospel, well then we have to grieve for the scarcity of preachers. The word, by the way, is simply the word for herald. The one who sounds forth. These were the messengers before the days of mass media and broadcast television and radio and internet and all that. The way that word would be gotten out would be that you would literally go into a public square, someone would go into a public square, and they would cry out with a loud voice, as loud as they could, usually reading from some official document. And they didn't necessarily go to dialogue or to debate. They were there just simply to announce. In fact, they would often do their job. They would make their announcement and then they would move on to the next location because they had to get the word out. So this wasn't some sort of ongoing discussion. This was just heralding forth the message. And it was the listener's responsibility to do with that information whatever was their duty. To obey it, to heed it, to whatever. But Paul's point is that if people never even hear the message heralded forth, if they never even hear it proclaimed, if it's never even spoken to them, then they don't even have the opportunity to respond. Very simple. Which leads, fourthly, to Paul's question in verse 15, how are they to preach unless they're sent? All of this, in other words, implies the presence of heralds. It implies the presence of preachers, which I suppose you could break down logically into two parts in itself. It implies the obedience of the herald and it implies God summoning them, commanding them. People don't always respond, unfortunately. Some unbelief is very well explained simply by people not opening their mouths. God calls, God prompts, God moves on your heart to speak to your friend, to your neighbor, maybe even to call you into ministry, and you don't respond. You're like Jeremiah who was complaining, saying that the Word of God is a reproach and a derision and Whenever he proclaimed it, people mocked him and denounced him. And he says in chapter 20, he was a laughingstock because he spoke the word of God. And yet he says, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there's a, in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. Jeremiah couldn't not speak. But it's reasonable to say that if 
people are not responding, if people are not believing, it's because you're not speaking. It's because you're not just simply heralding forth. That's reasonable. I mean, part of the equation is that the herald would respond to the call. And of course, really, behind all of this is the assumption that God sends us in the first place, which He has, of course, done. Crystal clear. Go into all the world and make disciples. The command that He's given to you and to me and to all the church. Our job to herald forth the good news. He has given it to us. In fact, if that's not enough, there is just the pragmatic uh, effect that Paul speaks about there. In verse 15... As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If, if it's not enough to understand the command, if it's not enough for you to understand the inner compulsion that might be in there, if there's not even a fire in your bones, there ought to at least be a consideration of the reality that when you place yourself in service to God's message, when you place yourself in service to Him, when you open your lips, when you speak, when you make the announcement of the good news, then you put yourself in this position... To be this person who is so beautiful in the minds of the receiver, that is the one who responds, the one who hears the message, you will be always that unique and distinct person in their life, the one who told them the good news of salvation. And that's an unspeakable privilege. And the scripture celebrates it. And you ought to consider it. It ought to be something that you remind yourself of over and over again. How wonderful, how magnificent that God gives us the joy and the privilege of participating in people's salvation. That we get to be the ones who announce this good news. Who make this known and people respond to it. And and we get the joy of seeing their life changed. And we form the bond with them because they're the ones who told us about the gospel of Christ. I remember... Whenever I was a young man, 17 years old, a a guy took me on the back porch of a house and he shared the gospel with me. And he asked me why I thought I was going to heaven and I gave him all the wrong reasons, all the wrong answers, and he confronted me with the fact of my own lack of understanding, my own misinformation, and he challenged me with what I needed to do to respond to the gospel. I didn't respond that day. But I was very impacted by him. It would be in a few months because of the stirring of that man and my reading of scripture. And one night, listening to the testimony of someone else, thinking through now months of reading in the truth, all of that came home into my heart and the Lord changed me. I went home weeping and in tears. And I didn't know anything, but I knew I was supposed to tell people because someone had told me. And I went home and I picked up the phone and I called my three best friends who uh, thought I was tripping out on some drug or had gotten high. I mean, they just, they, they, I was not the same person, but they, they heard the message of the gospel from me and I carried that forth, sharing the gospel where I could, my high school, my friends. And I remember, went through high school, went through college, after college, went to serve overseas in uh, China. 
But before I went to China, I went to a training session in Richmond, Virginia. And I show up in Richmond, and you'll never believe who was there. The young man who shared his faith with me. It was a glorious reunion. And it brought tears to my eyes to see and to be able to say to him, thank you for doing that. You had no idea when you walked out of there what would ever happen with my life. You had no idea how that was going to impact me. You probably walked out and you thought there's you know, one more wasted opportunity, one more ridicule coming from another person. You probably thought all those things. But I want to tell you, I couldn't be more grateful for anyone else in my life than you. Beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel of good news. And that's just a foretaste, really. I believe, of what we'll experience in heaven as we get to sit around or stand around, kneel around the throne of God along with those who are so kind, so obedient, so gracious as to speak the truth to us. It's a wonderful thing. Because Paul says you can't respond to what you've never heard. You can't believe If no one ever speaks. And so the mandate for us, of course, is just to herald it forth. Just to speak the truth. Just to make the announcement. We don't have to beg. We don't have to plead. We don't have to debate. We don't have to do all those things. We just herald it forth. And God uses it. So Paul's laying out all of this. He's saying these are the conditions that are necessary for faith. This is the conditions that are necessary for someone to respond. It just makes logical sense that if someone is going to believe, there has to be someone who speaks. And if someone's going to speak, then they have to be sent. And and all that implies that God is ultimately behind it all. He's the one who's sending them out. And so we might conclude that if there is no faith, then perhaps there is no preacher. That would be a logical conclusion. Certainly happens sometimes. But Paul's point in this tragedy is that in Israel's history, that wasn't the case. There were plenty of preachers. And it's the second explanation in the tragic tale of Israel's failure to believe in verses 16 and 18. He says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says... Lord, who's believed our report? Even back in Isaiah's day. Even in Isaiah's day. This is long before Paul, long before Christ. Isaiah was already complaining about Israel. No one believes. Who has believed our report? Some of them had. A few had. A remnant had. But in the history of Israel, the message is clear. The obvious message is most of them had not. It wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just Christ. It wasn't just this particular moment, this particular preacher. It was all of Israel. The issue is not that God had not sent the preachers. The issue is that the people had not responded to them. By the time you get to Paul's day, the message is now coming through Christ and through His messengers. Faith, he says in verse 17, comes from hearing, but not just any hearing... Hearing through the word of Christ. It has to be the accurate message. It has to be the right message. 
And forget the fact that Israel believed a lot of things. Forget the fact that they accepted whatever parts of the Scripture they accepted. Forget the fact that they would reverence the Old Testament. The fact that they would not accept the message of Christ was condemning. It was indicting. Their forefathers hadn't accepted it, and now they hadn't accepted it. And it was the thing that was necessary. Faith, saving faith, comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. In other words, you don't get to pick and choose what you believe. You might be here today and you might consider yourself religious, you consider yourself devout, you consider yourself zealous, you think that you really admire the Bible, you think there's a lot of helpful principles, you've tried to live it out and apply it in your life in all kinds of ways, and yet what you are missing is the most important part, believing in the message of Christ, His Lordship and His resurrection. That is really, at the end of the day, what saving faith is about. And Israel didn't accept what they heard of it from Isaiah. And by the time you get to Paul's day, Israel still wasn't accepting what they heard in even more clear tones from Christ. Faith must respond to the message. And the message must be the clear gospel of Christ. See, unbelief doesn't normally saunter up to you in all of its grotesque ugliness and it doesn't sell you with all the destruction it's going to bring into your life and it doesn't win you over by telling you how it's going to rob you of your peace and it doesn't win you over by telling you how it's going to wreck your family it doesn't do all that stuff it comes dressed in some attractive sophisticated garb some refined and sometimes even religious mask And it gets you to believe all kinds of things, except for the main thing, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that He's the Lord to whom you should submit. This is what Paul says happened for Israel. They heard, in fact, he says in verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out. And their, uh, to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's quoting here from Psalm 19, using it as an analogy. Psalm 19, speaking of God's general revelation that didn't go just to Israel, went to all the world. Meaning that, that when you look into creation, when you see the beauty and the majesty of the stars and the sun and the mountains and the streams and the oceans, when you see all of that, Romans chapter 1, as we saw, makes... Now, all those things make God and His attributes obvious so that the psalmist David can proclaim in Psalm 19 that nowhere is their voice not heard. Nowhere is God's attributes not made known. Well, Paul picks up that language of universality and adopts it to speak of Israel's experience, not in general revelation, but in special revelation. In the special revelation of the Word of God and of the Gospel, God had done so much more for Israel than He had done for the rest of the world so that Just as general revelation covered the entire earth, special revelation had covered or passed throughout all of Israel. And so they had no excuse. Every condition had been met. 
Preachers had been sent. They had preached. The people had heard. They should have believed. They should have called on the name of the Lord. Which brings us to the third explanation of Israel's tragic failure in in their history to listen to the gospel. And it involves, in verses 19 through 21, the paradox of the preaching of Israel's prophets, the paradox of preaching to these rebellious hearts. He says in verse 19, But I ask, yet again, he says, I ask, did Israel not understand? What's the implication? I mean, they, they were sent so many preachers. They were sent so many prophets. They were given so much in the Word of God. Did Israel not understand? By this point, the answer should be clear. Of course they did. But Paul takes it even further. He wants to drive us even deeper into this. And he shows us that not only did God supply everything for their understanding, he even warned them as he anticipated their resistance and their rebellion to the word of God. Israel would hear, Israel would, would, would see the truth, and yet they would reject it. They'd have the benefit of hearing the law, they'd have the benefit of hearing a message of sin, they'd have the benefit of hearing of God's grace and God's forgiveness, they'd have the benefit of hearing from the prophets generation after generation after generation. And yet all the way back at the very beginning, when God first gave them the law, He declared that while they were His special people, while He had chosen them out from all the nations of the earth to be His own, while He would reveal Himself to them like no other nation, despite all that, they still wouldn't believe. And so even with Moses giving them the law to begin with. Moses anticipated and foretold all of this. And Paul quotes out of Deuteronomy 32 here. Moses said, first he says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. You have to understand the paradox here. God made Israel his special nation. And he's going to turn to those who are not a nation. God filled Israel with wisdom and knowledge. And he was going to turn to a foolish nation. In other words, by way of the contrast, God is indicating the sufficiency of what he had given them. He'd given them every privilege, every opportunity. And so he was going to turn to people who had no privilege, people who had no opportunity, people who were not a nation, people who were walking in foolishness. They had never been exposed to the word of God. He was going to turn to a foolish people who who had lived in no doubt darkness and pagan idolatry had suffered all of the ills of that kind of environment, little exposure to the Word of God, and they're going to be the ones who respond. Those who didn't have all the privileges, those who didn't have all the background. Paul follows it up. Follows up that quote from Moses with a quote from the prophets. Again, from Isaiah. Then Isaiah, he says, is so bold... 
as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So just to show you, this is not just some anomaly from one remote part of scripture, you have a witness from the law and you have a witness from the prophets. This is a message that came throughout Israel's history. And it's the same idea. Isaiah is indicting Israel who had, who had been specifically given the commandment to seek God and yet they wouldn't seek him. And so God turns to a people who didn't seek him. And these are the people that he saves. And the idea in all this is that it took very little, very little, For these people to respond. Very little preparation. Very little background. Very little preaching. Like Nineveh. When Jonah was sent to Nineveh. He went. He was resistant to the whole idea. And yet God compelled him to go anyway. And when he went. He preached a simple message. And the entire city repented. This is what God says he's going to do. And the simplicity of that message and their response demonstrates the hardness. Demonstrates the hardness. You're sitting around and you're looking at people who believe and you're congratulating yourself because you're not so naive. Because you weren't so easily duped by all this religious stuff. You, you consider yourself sophisticated. You consider yourself... Refined, studied, and even if you're putting on the game to foolish, uh, fool other people, you're not going to be duped yourself into really believing all of this religious stuff. You congratulate yourself. And all the while, God is saving, redeeming, transforming some of the simplest people, some of the most distant people, Some of the most outcast people, God's taking them and He's turning their life into trophies of grace. Where are you? You're still bitter. You're bitter about all the struggles and all the trials, all the difficulties that are in your life. You complain. People aren't treating you fairly. They're not treating you rightly. There's there's despair or there is anguish or there is sorrow in your life yet you consider yourself so bright listen this is just a testimony of the hardness of your heart the fact that God is saving people and he saves the scripture says not just the mighty and strong but the base The foolish things, the forgotten things of the world, he takes and he turns them into his trophies of grace. And you you continue to sit back in your sin proving not the weakness of the message but the hardness of your own heart. Paul turns and says finally, again quoting from Isaiah, of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is really the explanation. This is the explanation of your unbelief. This is the explanation of Israel's unbelief. It's not that the message wasn't clear. It's not that the message is wrong. It's not that the message is somehow discredited. It's that you just take your place alongside of Israel and every other unbeliever. 
Here's God, like a loving parent, standing at the doorway, wanting to welcome his or her children back home, back into the safe environment of the home. And they just turn their back on him. And they reject his message. Paul says you can't blame God. Don't go around blaming God. Don't talk about how God didn't choose you or God didn't do all that. You have one person to blame. Because the message is so simple. You have one person to blame. You. When you stand before God, all your complaints about your, your husband or your wife or your parents or whoever else that you're blaming, they're not, they're not, they're not going to do you any good. You have one person. So I don't know which of these two profiles describes you. I don't know if you're the one whom God is continually stretching out His arms to and exposing you to His truth, giving you opportunity after opportunity to believe and you're just hardening your heart. Or if you're the one that wasn't seeking God. You weren't brought up in a godly home or godly examples and godly truth, but you're here today and God's calling you. I don't know which of those two profiles fits you. But whichever one it is, the response is still the same. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess Jesus as your Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Psalm 40 says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Our invitation to you today is don't leave without that blessing. Don't leave without that salvation. If God is calling you, respond today. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the word that you have sent it to us with such clarity, with so many faithful heralds. Thank you, Lord, first of all, for your grace in doing that. Thank you for the ones who shared it with us. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to participate together in that. And would you forgive us when for shame of rejection and denunciation we have closed our lips and not heralded forth. We pray, Father, that you'd grant us grace that our repentance in that area might be complete. And Lord, we pray for those who are here today hearing the message. They hear the message of the truth. Would you be gracious to them? May they respond. May they believe and be saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.